Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm glad that it is uh, Wednesday already. I think it's going to be not only a spectacular show, but it's the middle of the week, and it is uh, that time when it's we we think about the week hasn't just started and it's not quite over yet, and where are we um, when it comes to our walk with the Lord? I, I always think in the middle of the week, I want to say, like I do every day when I get up, where am I uh, in my walk with the Lord? So I called Pastor Brent Kuhlman and I said, do you want to come on the show and talk about Acts chapter 2? And he said, yeah, and we'll throw in Genesis chapter 11 for fun too. So I thought that seems like a fun middle of the week activity. So uh, all the way from Murdoch, Nebraska, Pastor Brent Kuhlman, who is the pastor at Trinity uh, Lutheran Church in Murdoch. Brent, welcome. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be with you. Thank you. I, um, I'm i excited to talk about uh, Acts chapter 2. There's plenty there. So when you said, let's throw in Genesis 11, 2, I thought, I don't know where you're going to go with this, but I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Well, we need, we need an hour or two, but we'll do the best we can by just maybe highlighting a few things. I think, first of all, um, as we look at Acts 2, keep it in the context of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. That is to say, Jesus has accomplished the winning and achieving of salvation. Uh, because he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And you remember, he preached that wonderful sermon from the cross. He said, it is finished. So salvation job's done. So now what? (laughs) Well, this is the now what. Exactly. Uh, The Good Friday victory of his death for, for all sinners is to be broadcast and proclaimed. It is to be preached, and it is to be made known far and wide. And for for that to happen, Bill, (laughs) you've got to have breath. The church has to have breath if she's going to proclaim the victory and reign of Christ. Because we all know that in order for us to speak or sing, you have to inhale. (laughs) You have to take in a deep breath, don't you? Yes. Well, Bill, that's Pentecost. That's Acts 2. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the church's breath. And so in the text in Acts 2, you have rushing wind and tongues of fire. And as that's going on in Acts 2, I would contend Jesus is the one who is breathing his life-giving breath into his church to give her life and vitality and breath in order to do what? To speak, to preach his death and resurrection for the salvation of sinners. Oh, and by the way, you know, when, when I speak of breath, I can't help but remember, remember John 20, he breathed on them and said, receive the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit. Remember that? Yeah. So that's where I'm getting this from. So now here at Pentecost, we get... 50 days after our Lord's bodily resurrection, his breath, the Spirit, blows through the church like a mighty wind. And as the text says, divided tongues of fire rest on each of the disciples that are gathered there. And let's let our listeners, let's remind them that, you know, wind and fire in the Old Testament, those were Mount Sinai things as well. And let's go backwards just a little bit, or back more in the New Testament you know, Jesus promised that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so lo and behold, what have we got? 
That's going on right now. These people are filled with the Spirit, and they begin to speak in various languages and various dialects. In Acts 2, you've got people gathered from all over the world in Jerusalem, don't you? Mm -hmm. And what happens is they hear the good news of Jesus preached in their own language and their own dialect. So when the text says they, they spoke in tongues or preached in tongues, These are languages that they can understand. So Pentecost is a miracle. Um, Um, I would contend it's a miracle of speaking, (laughs) speaking in languages people can understand, and hearing, because the Holy Spirit works both through the mouth and the ear to preach the Word and so that people can hear the Word. You know, faith comes by hearing. Hearing hearing by the Word of God, yes. Now, I'm going to throw something in here just for fun, because I I just love this. It's really delicious. You know, the Holy Spirit always works through means, and in this case here in Acts 2, words, uh, nouns, verbs, adverbs, adjectives, subjects, predicates. I mean, human language. Mm -hmm. And Bill, this is one of the most amazing gifts of the Holy Spirit, namely uh, that the Word of God that kills and makes alive, the Word of God that um, cares and builds up, I'm thinking of Jeremiah here, that's sharper than any two-edged sword, (laughs) it can be conveyed in what? Ordinary human language. And in Acts 2, that's precisely what you've got going on. Coherent human languages. People from all over the world, they hear the gospel in their own native tongues. Um, It's like our Lord saying to all these folks, hey, you know what? This Jesus who died for you, who rose for you, that's all for you folks. Um, this Good Friday death and resurrect, re- resurrected life of Jesus, this all this forgiveness, it's for you. And so when Peter and the apostles preach, they're simply telling these people, hey, we want you to take this gospel and take it personally. Own it. Mm. You know, own it. It's for you. Yeah. Now, I said, let's throw in Genesis 11 for fun. I want to do that at this point because I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> in Genesis 11, you remember what happened there. That was a different language event. So I've spoken of Acts 2 as a language event, right? Mm -hmm. And so is Genesis 11, but a different one, the Tower of Babel. And if you remember that story, and I'll be brief because we don't have much time, we remember that God intervened on purpose in those ambitious plans of men to build a city and a tower to the heavens by doing what? Confusing their languages. (laughs) This is what's so delicious for me, because when God does this in Genesis 11, I contend um, that it's subversive on purpose. Because if you want to make people scatter scatter, um, or disperse them, you make it so they can't understand each each other's um, subjects or verbs. You confuse their languages, and guess what? People will scatter. Now, I said God does this on purpose in Genesis 11. And I think this is delicious because it's a protective act of judgment on God's part. And it's the, for this reason, Bill, I contend, so that a united humanity, and that's what, what, that's what uh, want, they want to do in Genesis 11. They want a united humanity. But God scatters them. So a united humanity won't do something worse or more horrific. Mm. Let me say this, just, for, just to poke, poke everybody fun, fun at them. I think Genesis 11 reveals God's mistrust of our unity as sinners. Because what do we hear all the time today from the media, from the bigwigs, is that everybody needs to what? Unite. Mm -hmm. To be together as what? One 
world. So they've got meetings they have all the time, or every year, I should say, at Davos, Switzerland, with this goal in mind. And what do they do? They lecture us from these meetings of how great this will be if we just all be one world. Now, here's my point from Genesis 11. I don't think the Lord thinks that one world is anything good at all, because God knows, Bill, he knows um, the mischief that sinners will make if they just follow Davos, Switzerland, or Genesis 11, and all get together. So what does he do? He babbles them, or he babbles them. It sounds like what it is, babbling, if mm-hmm. you will. And we also know from Genesis 11 that this forms the root for Babylon, the city that man builds, the city that's destined for what in the Bible? Final destruction on the last day. So this should remind us, I would contend, that all our ambitions without God are going to result in nothing but what? I would suggest confusion and chaos. All our attempts to be united, to be one people, one world. And I, You know, my voice inflection, knows people know I'm making fun of that, <laughs> will be nothing more than tower building without the Lord. And I think this, too, from Genesis 11, I think this reminds us of who runs the verbs, the more important verbs, verbs if not even the nouns in, in the Bible. It's we don't. We don't. God does. That is to say, we don't reach up to him, not with our towers, to climb up to the heavens, or how about this one? We don't climb up to him with our religions of self-justification that attempt to do the same. Instead, the Bible teaches that God comes down to us. God becomes one of us and one with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember John 1? The Word became flesh. Now, if we've got another minute before we break, we do. I want to I take us back to Acts 2. And so right, when we look at my Acts, notes. So when we, when we look at Acts <laughs> chapter 2, let's notice something. At Pentecost, you'll notice that the confusion of Babel is not totally undone. Did you hear what I just said? Not totally undone. Because the diversity of languages remains in Acts 2, doesn't it? But instead, and I love this, um, God does what? He uses the diversity of tongues or languages as a sign of his spirit, and he brings people together, not by giving them a common language, but by giving them a common, now get a load of this, a common Savior. Just as Paul teaches, you know, in Ephesians 4, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So this, this is how I wanted to tie in Genesis 11 with Acts 2 and Pentecost. Do you have any questions at this point? Well, I, you know, I'm, first of all, I'm amazed. I love these dots that you've connected because uh, I've never made these, this connection before. Genesis 11 and, and Acts 2, never done it. Well, you know, there's another, here's another thing, too, I want to just point out. You know, when, when the, when the uh, unbelievers are uh, watching what's happening at Pentecost, let's mm-hmm. just call it the world, when the world sees what happens in Acts 2, mm-hmm. they're very skeptical, aren't they? And what do they claim? They claim that the disciples who speak in these languages and dialects that people from all over the Mediterranean world can understand in their own language, they say that the disciples are what? They've had too much wine. Yeah, Yeah, they're wasted. (laughs) They're they're stone cold drunk, and it's only nine in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone whose language skills improve, much less expand. (laughs) 
with a bunch of alcohol in their yeah. blood. <laughs> that's, a, that's an excellent point, Brent. All right, we'll, we'll take a little break. Pastor Brent Kuhlman is my guest. We're talking about, of course, Acts chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 11. And Brent is the uh, senior pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. We'll be right back. So glad you joined me today. I've got a great show. Pastor Brent Kuhlman is with me right now. He's the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in, in uh, Murdoch, Nebraska. And we're talking about Acts chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 11. I have not connected these dots before. And this, Rosie and I were just during the break, we're just sort of sort of going, wow, this is really, really good. Um, and again, Brent, when you make reference to God controlling the nouns and the verbs, and uh, he, he comes to us, so powerful. Yeah, we have to keep that straight uh, for the sake of uh, a people to trust in Jesus only for salvation. Because we ref- if we reference people uh, to themselves uh, for salvation, there, ca- there can't be certainty. There'll always be doubt. So that's why I wanted to make that point. And that's, that's really the point of Pentecost. You know, when you read Acts 2 very carefully, you'll notice uh, what Jesus says about the work of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. Like, for example, Jesus says, in John 14, 15, 16, I'm just going to paraphrase, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, and the Holy Spirit will bear witness to me. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. That's precisely what happens in Acts 2. Oh, and by the way, and Jesus also said that one of the things the Holy Spirit would do from John 14, 15, 16, is the Holy Spirit would convict people of their sin or their guilt. And that's precisely what happens in Acts. So you remember Peter preaches, and he preaches. He doesn't preach Holy Spirit. He does say that you know, this fulfills the prophecy of Joel 2. What you just saw is fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in Joel 2. And then after that, he preaches what? Read Acts 2 carefully, folks. He preaches Christ, crucified and risen. And he brings David in and other parts of the Old Testament to prove that the Old Testament prophesied about this Jesus to be the Christ who would suffer and die for you for your salvation. And so Peter does precisely what the Holy Spirit would lead him to do, as Jesus promised in John's Gospel, to bear witness and give glory to who? Jesus, because he's the Savior. Oh, and by the way, this too is wonderful from the Bible. When I referenced the the John uh, uh, remarks by Jesus about the Holy Spirit, when Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will bear witness to me, and he will glorify me, people always ask me, well, why is that, Pastor? And the answer is really simple. Do you know what it is, folks? It's this. Because Jesus is the one who died on the cross. Jesus is the one who rose from the dead. The Holy Spirit didn't. So the Holy Spirit's job is to make sure that Jesus gets preached. And that's precisely what happens in Acts chapter 2. Now, we were joking before the break, or we were laughing, I should say, at the skepticism of the people seeing this. And they said that the disciples were, were drunk. And, you know, the skepticism hasn't stopped. You know, you have it in Acts 2, and you still have it today. The preaching of Jesus, the Spirit-filled preaching of the gospel, is always mocked and ridiculed by people today, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and, and in addition to that, you've got lots of false teaching and false teachers, deceptive spirits, small-s spirits, 
and deceptive small s spiritualities. And those, those false teaching, teachers, teachers and teachings, they all want to distract or diminish our Lord's Good Friday death and what he did for the world there. You know, and let's not forget that in First Timothy, Paul told uh, Timothy and all of us that the Spirit, notice, the Holy Spirit expressly says that in the last days or later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And that's, that's in the apostolic age, and it's still today, because our day, Bill, I think you'd agree with me, the, the time in which we live in America is just filled with many small s spirits and false beliefs. It's like a religious babel out there, isn't it? Oh, it is completely, Brent. Yeah, you put that so well. And, you know, that babbling confusion, sometimes it even leaks into the church. Mm-hmm. And so we're tempted to uh, be fascinated by all kinds of small s spiritual things, um, and we can be distracted. Um, but I want to reemphasize a point, is that every Sunday— because here's, I'm not saying this for will have mercy on me, but sometimes people, when they read Acts 2, they say, boy, if I could have only been there, you know? Well, you weren't, so get over it. <laughs> but how about this? How about this, folks? I'll throw this for you. <laughs> every Sunday, every Sunday when you come to church, the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of the gospel, the good news that you're saved for Jesus' sake, is proclaimed in a what? In a language, in a tongue that you can understand. And in Trinity Murdoch, that language is English. (laughs) Now, when I taught in Siberia, Mm -hmm. the gospel was preached in Russian. When I taught in Tanzania, the gospel was preached in Swahili. When I taught in Sumatra, it was Batak. When I was in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, the gospel was preached in Vietnamese. So folks, if you're picking up what I'm throwing down right now, Every Sunday when you go to church and you hear the gospel preached clearly for you and for your salvation, there's a Pentecost going on. That is to say, through the preaching of the Word, the Holy Spirit is being poured out on you through that Word to call you to faith if you're, if you're not a believer, or to um, keep you in the faith if you're already a believer. So... Oh, you know, when you read Acts 2 really carefully, um, I would contend the ordinary way of living in and from Pentecost, it's real simple. Living in and from Pentecost is going to church to hear the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from you, just like it happens in Acts 2. That's what Peter does, folks. Read it very carefully. And what's interesting is in verses 38 and 39 in Acts 2 is Peter then carries out the mandate of Matthew 28, you know, when Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, and you do it in two ways, you baptize and you teach. And so, you know, when Peter preaches this sermon, and the people are cut to the heart, and they ask, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And I find that fascinating, because the every one of you matches what? The Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. And so then Peter then baptizes, doesn't he, in Acts chapter 2? And he says, you get a promise, forgiveness and gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's another way that you're Pentecosted, if you will, Bill. Mm-hmm, when, you're, yeah. when you're Pentecosted in the name of Jesus, as Paul, uh, Peter says in Acts 2, um, you're given the gift of, of, of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins that Jesus won for you. And what's interesting is that Peter says that promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off. 
Now, I love that. I love that preaching. I've, I've learned a lot from Peter here in Acts 2 that for you, talk is gift talk. I don't know about you, but when I buy my wife a birthday present or an anniversary present or a Christmas present, I say, here, honey, this is for you. So here we learn that baptism is a gift because it's for you. But this, what I'm trying to say is that just like language is the ordinary activity of Pentecost, so is baptism. It's, it's the ordinary way of being Pentecosted. Are you baptized? You are. I am. I'm baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so when I was given the name of the Holy Spirit in my baptism, I was Holy Spirited, if you will. I was Pentecosted. So if somebody asks you, hey, Coolman, you full of the Holy Spirit? I'll say, you better believe I am. And they'll say, well, I, I watch you on the golf course. Uh, that, <laughs> I don't think you are. <laughs> so they'll say, how do, you know, how do you know you're full of the Holy Spirit, Coolman? I'll say, I'm baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And, and oh, let's, at, at, towards the very end of Acts 2, I can't help myself. Do we have time? Oh, yeah. Okay. So in, at the very end of Acts 2, I'll go to verse 42 to be precise. This is, this, my point is this. How do we live in and from Pentecost? Well, go to Acts 2.42. The ordinary way is to come to church, like the early congregation in Jerusalem did, to do what? To continue in the doctrine of the apostles, in the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and in the prayers. Now, if your Bible translation has prayer, that's, that's a bad translation. It's always, it's plural in the Greek. And it's the prayers, by the way. It's not just prayer in general, it's the prayers. In other words, my point is, this early congregation at Jerusalem, what did they do? They, after you know, Pentecost, they worshiped together in much the same way that all Christians do all over the world until the last day. Preaching, teaching, fellowship in the bread, which is Luke's way of talking about the Lord's Supper, okay? That's Lutherans believe that, by the way. Some don't, but I'm just giving you my Lutheran belief on this, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. So to live in and from our, yeah, to live in and from Pentecost, Acts 2, is just go to church, hear the preaching of the gospel, because the Holy Spirit's at work there. If you're not baptized, get baptized, and then follow the Acts 2.42 pattern. Now, Let's have some more fun, shall we? We only got, uh, a, we only got a minute left, so let's have, okay. a quick, let's have quick fun. <laughs> well, can you imagine, Bill, because sometimes Christians are tempted to say, boy, if we just had the wind and the tongues of fire every Sunday like in Acts 2, wouldn't that be awesome? I got news for you. I've been a pastor for a long time. You know what would happen? <laughs> we'd get bored with it in about one month. <laughs> and what would we do? We'd complain about the wind messing up our hair, mm. and we'd worry about the tongues of fire. They'd singe the carpet. They'd burn my vestments. Maybe burn the building down, and then we'd lose our insurance policy as quick as you can say, Bob's your uncle. Right. <laughs> now, Jesus knows all this, yeah. and he knows what's best for us. Yeah. And so living in and from Pentecost is in these very ordinary ways, like in Acts 2, 42. Yeah. Friends, so fun having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time today. It's been great having you on. You're welcome. Bye-bye, Bill. You bet. Brent Coleman's been my guest, senior pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. Take a short break. Dennis Allen's going to join me to talk about making disciples. Be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. 
Why is discipleship on the decline? That's a question I'm going to ask today to uh, Dennis Allen. He's written a book called The Disciple Dilemma, Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi, Bill. Thanks for letting me jump in with you. Are you kidding? This is great. I'm thinking about my next high school reunion. I would like to rent your credentials. <laughs> Don't talk to my wife about that. Because <laughs> if I could if I could show up at my next reunion with your credentials, that would be impressive. Just to let my audience hear a couple of them, you were at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. You got your MBA from Xavier. Let's see, you've been turning around a lot of companies. You're a teacher, an elder, a speaker all over the country. And you're a United States Air Force F-15 fighter pilot. That's pretty cool. Guilty as charged. I get it. I get it. But somewhere in that head of yours is uh, a desire to help us be smarter about disciple-making. So let me ask you this question. Uh, why? What's happened? I mean, we're implementing all these discipleship programs, but is it producing solid disciples? This is kind of the, the, the kind of lead-in that I just wish 1% to 2% of the churches in America would set up, which is, do we even have a problem? If you look all over the map at the credible research houses, you see plenty of symptoms that say something's not right, mm-hmm. and we've got to do something about it. So... There's, there's basically three parts to this situation. One, do you believe we have a problem? Two, what is it? And what should we do about it? Right. I'm assuming uh, we do have a problem. And what what should we do about it? Yeah, we start out with, um, let, me, let me just give you a couple of symptoms that teed up our thinking as the book came to life. Because um, as you mentioned before, the believers, we're, we're just looking at the landscape and going, what's going on? So Here's a couple of numbers just to try to help people digest what's going on. If we look at the church attending Protestants in the U.S. today, notionally disciples, nine out of ten of them say it's not my job or I'm simply not equipped or willing to share my faith. That's Mm -hmm. one number, nine out of ten. If you look at people's spiritual development, eight out of ten have no spiritual life other than attending a sermon 1.7 times a month. Okay, here's the one that really caught my eye and got me started on this book, both from a business perspective and a Christian perspective. Six out of 10 millennials and Gen Z's, think 45 and below, who grew up in the church have walked. And the statistics are saying they aren't coming back, unlike prior generations. Hmm. Their symptoms. That's not the problem, but there's the symptoms. That's uh, quite stunning. So when when I think of... Some of the persecution that's going on today, there's a lot of pressure uh, for the, these Gen Zs, these under 45, to conform, to be popular, uh, to get lots of likes on social media. Uh, is that eroding their ability to be uh, strong disciples? I'm going to take it in a little bit different direction. Okay. I'm going to say that discipleship has been hacked. The operating system of discipleship has been hacked. Russia? technology term. Is that the Russians? And <laughs> Well, some of the people could have come from that territory, <laughs> but it happened 1,800 years ago. All right. So let's tee that up for just a second. I want to take it in a different direction because 
The thesis of the book is 1,800 years ago, we started devolving what discipleship was about, what Christ modeled discipleship to be about, introducing some really bad non-biblical traditions. We list six of them in the book, and we said these things have corrupted discipleship so that the symptoms we see today are coming to life in front of us. All right, Dennis, you've got to give me, you've got to put some meat on that bone. I want to hear what some of these traditions are that have derailed how we do discipleships. Let's start with one, go back to the third century, think about the period just prior to Constantine making Christianity, quote-unquote, the religion of the world. And we've got the persecution of the Christians then. You were talking about persecutions a few minutes ago. The reality is optional lordship came on the grid hard and fast during that persecution period. There was a group of people called the Lapsi. And if you really drill down into the history, we find a group of people, some who were dying for their faith, others who were recanting and checking out. When things cooled off, they'd come back. When things would get hot, they'd check out. And I'm not condemning people because I, like everyone else, need grace, and I'm, I'm a very flaky Christian in my own right. But this idea of optional lordship has fossilized itself in the concept of discipleship, which is to say, I want Jesus to save me, but discipleship where I'm completely surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ unconditionally, that's an option. That's an upgrade. No thanks. I'm good. That's one of six. That's, uh, of course, going to be an issue for not only people under 45, but people over 45 as well. I mean, the whole idea of fully surrendering to the to lordship of Jesus Christ, when you ask people who've been following Jesus for a long time, have you fully surrendered? I think they are going to say yes, but in the back of their head, they're going to go, have I? Yeah, this idea of surrender, unconditional surrender, is not well understood in this generation. I Thank think. you. And when I say this, I'm thinking about this 30, 40 year spread of people who are in here because we're Americans, we're independent, we're autonomous, we have our own rights. When we think about surrender, what we really think about is negotiating a real estate deal. I'm going to give a little, you're going to give a little, God's going to give a little, I'm going to give a little, we'll get along and we'll compromise somewhere in the middle. That's not surrender. That's one of our problems. Toss another one out to you. We picked up on a guy named Simeon the Stylite Elder, who was one of the great evangelists of his time. Many centuries ago, he was converting a group of Bedouins left and right, but we called it catch-and-release Christianity because <laughs> the problem has continued to ripple through. A root cause in our discipleship today is we convert people, hand them a Bible, put them through a membership class, and we say, sure, hope it goes great for you. See you later. That's catch-and-release Christianity. My guest is Dennis Allen, and he's written a book called The Disciple Dilemma, Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. You know, Dennis, I've always thought that uh, evangelism and discipleship are one and the same. That's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They're not separate, because I think sometimes I hear that people want to do evangelism, and then later they're going to do discipleship. And I think, no, that's got to be a—that's one-stop shopping. You do both at the same time. John Piper's done a great job of saying, stop limiting the idea of conversion— to just, I prayed a prayer, and now I'm done. Amen. Let's look at the broader world of that. And I think he's absolutely right in that. But we have, in soundbite Christianity, reduced Christianity to say the prayer, be an evangelist, say, get people to say the prayer, and then hand them a Bible and turn them loose, and surely somebody will help them. The problem is, 
they haven't. Dennis, let's go back and talk more about Discipleship 1.0, and then let's talk about Discipleship 2.0. And sometimes the, better, the newer version isn't necessarily better, is it? No, it's not. And I think that's one of the uh, challenges that we face in the world. You think about, um, you were talking a few minutes ago about the, the uh, persecution of a lot of young people today when we look at uh, problems that are listed in a, like a movie like The Social Dilemma. I'm sure a lot of people have watched the social dilemma where we have concentrated down the tribalisms, the politicization, sort of the, the let's call it worldly theologies. And the crash and burn in all this comes down to this fact. We have reduced so much of discipleship to sound bites that we don't really understand version 1.0, Christ's idea, which is here we go. And I'm asking everybody, please hang on. When I say this, some people are going to want to throw grenades, but if we get them, mail them to Bill, not to me. Um, the, the idea is non-believers become disciples. Non-believers start out as disciples. They are looking, they are checking, they are investigating, and they come to begin to realize who this Christ is. And they surrender and they follow perpetually. It's a no retirement plan discipleship. That's version 1.0. Version 2.0, well, we thought Jesus didn't think about a few things, so we want to upgrade it, and it has become, I don't really need to surrender. I just need to get saved and get back to what I was doing. If I hang around with people in the church, I'm really discipling. The pros are up on stage. I can sit there with my latte, and I don't really need to concentrate on improving myself, nor on taking the hope, the reason for the hope in me out to the other world. That's version 2.0 discipleship. That's interesting. Now, I certainly don't want to be bashing churches at all, but I will say that there's been, uh, over the last 30 years, a a very much an attractional model to try to draw more people into seats in churches. Uh, Try to be a little bit hip, relevant, popular. Let's make church the funnest place to be. Nothing wrong with that, but if you're not making disciples, I think you're missing the mission of the church. I think we get that part of it um, absolutely the way you described it uh, in motion. And I think there's a I think there's another part of this. And I think there there are movements afoot that say, well, intellectualism is the answer to discipleship. If we can make you really smart, so you can have discussions about infralapsarianism and all sorts of fascinating terms that really probably wouldn't show up at most cocktail parties. Boy, that's a great disciple because they're really smart. And or an experiential disciple. Hey, I've had these feelings. I've had these emotions. I've had these moments. I've had these indwellings. And if I've got that, I'm a disciple. When in reality, all those things are components of discipleship, just like going to church, just like we desperately need our wonderful pastors who are preaching great sermons and helping to educate and equip us and build us up. However, comma, discipleship, is also, and crucially, and critically, and in an oversight way, missed by so many as following Christ as an individual with wingmen, with mentors, and with people in tow behind us who are saying, why are you the way you are, and why do you think the way you think? We've missed that relational discipleship so often in modern Christianity. And Dennis, some of the numbers that I look at are pretty alarming when I hear 90% have no confidence or willingness to talk about their faith. If we're not doing that, there's problems. 
Yeah, this is such an incredibly stunning number for me. The more I began to look at people like Pew and Barna and the International Center for Research Studies and even the Humanist Society and realize that that 9 out of 10 is holding true. And the reasons are many, of course, but some of the top floaters are these. Well, that's exclusive and that's cruel. And surely God would have other ways to look at this, right? He wouldn't be just like that. Or... I don't know what I'm doing. Or, hey, Bill Arnold's the pro. Send him his way. Let him answer the questions and deal with that. That's not discipleship. That's passivity mm-hmm. with definition. Yeah, although I'm not against anyone being sent to my show to listen to the radio. But that's another, that's another topic. Dennis Allen's my guest. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, more on the disciple dilemma. This uh, his book. Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. There's some statistics out there we'll continue with that 80% of Christians are on mute publicly about who they are and what they believe. Discipleship on the Decline, The Disciple Dilemma, a book written by Dennis Allen, explains how people have been derailed from biblical discipleship for centuries and likewise derailed the development of making more disciples, which Jesus calls us to do. Uh, Dennis, uh, right before the break, I was mentioning that 80% of Christians are on mute publicly about who they are and what they believe. And if that's true, we have a huge problem with evangelism, and discipleship. It's incredible, isn't it? It look is. At mutinous statistic. In fact, you almost go, there's no possible way that can be true. Um, of course, this, the population studies are looking at mainline Protestants, evangelicals, of course, a, a larger swath of people. But here we have 52 million people in America claiming to be Protestant Christians, and of that 52 million, we have um, 90% of them saying, I don't need to be caught speaking about this Mondays through Fridays, or I don't know how. That's, that's a stunning number. And it piggybacks on this idea of what we call spiritual inertness, which is to say that about 80% of the church-attending Protestant community has nothing spiritually, no prayer life, no small group no fellowship, nothing other than attending a sermon on average 1.7 times a month. That is a very atrophied discipleship. Mm-hmm. And I would like to mention Dennis's book is not a book about discipleship, but it's a book about the things that are uh, crippling discipleship and what uh, what can be done by leadership first and, and then to restore Christ's model of discipleship. Uh, in the first uh, segment, Dennis, we talked about uh, traditions that have derailed how we do discipleship. I'd love to hear another one. Okay, we we stole a couple of terms out of the COVID pandemic. For example, one of them was the old term herd immunity, and we switched it and call it herd community. And what we mean by that is there's the idea today in Western Christianity that if I just gather together in a herd, 
somewhere, whether it's church or small groups of 10, 20 or whatever, that if I slosh around with those people, I'll come out and I'm a disciple. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a tremendous need for us to gather together. Let us not forsake the gathering together. That's so important for us, but that's not the totality of discipleship. That's a vitamin in our, in our spiritual diet, but that's not the totality. You won't survive strictly on the gathering. So that's herd community. That was one more that we had, and it ties closely together with one other one. You've heard the term social distancing, of course. Everyone's heard that in the pandemic. We've got one we call clerical distancing, and the term is borrowed from uh, an old church history term called clericalism, and that meant if you aren't a pro, you have no license to practice the liturgies. Stay away. Stay in the pews. And it results over time in two problems. One, that the pros are the ones placed in the roles that the disciples should actually be in. We spent some time in history talking about that. But two, we eventually educate both the pastor and the pew sitter to say, one guy's job is to sit in the pew with his coffee. The other guy's job is to get up and pitch a really terrific sermon, and that's discipleship, and now it's time to go home and have lunch. That's a little discouraging to hear. So, uh, Dennis, what what will happen if, if we are doing nothing but creating fragile disciples that uh, result in uh, timid believers? Yeah, so the, so the book is really making the case that at the front end, first half of the book, do we have a problem? Here's the symptoms— We've just talked about some of the traditions that we think are the root causes in the destruction of good version 1.0 discipleship. But the second half of the book says, let's stop the atrophy. Let's stop the burnout rate. Let's stop the walk-off rate. Let's stop the muteness. And here's the way we go forward. And that bill actually began in my career as a turnaround CEO. I go into Wall Street-owned corporations that are having trouble, struggling, and I spend several years with them as their chief executive officer and help stand them back up and get them turned around and back to health. Corporate repentance might be the joke I guess you could use on that <laughs> right term. Mm-hmm. I started watching how employees are walking off. Employees had no idea who they were. Employees had no idea why they were there. And I said, gee, this is a terrible problem. And it dawned on me as uh, at that time I was the chairman of an elder uh, board in a mega church, And I went, wait a minute, that's going on all around me here. What's going on here? And I began to realize, as we dug down into this, the church started out with its evolved method of discipleship, and the business community thought, well, that's a pretty good model. Let's follow the church. Then the church started realizing it had a problem, and it started deciding to follow the business community, which was already following the church. And now you've got this kind of do loop going on where business and church are looking at each other's practices, neither of which are working because they've evolved. So the second half of our book is to say, Let's stop that. Let's stop using Harvard Business School as our model for discipleship and get back to version 1.0. All right. I, I, like, I like that thinking a lot. Uh, and I'm fascinated that business and churches are similarly having the same issues. Uh, and those, those parallels are because they're both trying to borrow from each other. Did I understand that right? Yes, they're looking at each other. And of course, both commercial business and Christianity are in the business of people. And how do we work with people and get people to do things that we believe are necessary and important for us? And there's example after example of the same kinds of problems we described in the disciple dilemma happening to GE, for example. 
And all these fascinating, we got, we got several business examples in the book, but at the end of the day, you see it happening in Christianity. And we go, wait a minute, version 1.0 discipling by Christ dealt with this. And he's got a beautiful model for us. If we take it to the commercial marketplace with Jesus' model, and we take it to the Christian world with Jesus' model, I'm telling you as a turnaround CEO, this stuff works, and it makes people different. That is uh, exciting to hear about, Dennis. You got me all fired up. (laughs) Well, we had a lot of fun writing the book. Let me give you a couple of thoughts just as a path forward so I'm not leaving you feel like we're in total gloom and despair. That would be nice. Version 1.0 talks about the crucial need for all of us to understand our mission. Matthew 28, which we all call the Great Commission, the Co-Mission, is actually a statement that is fascinating. It is not about converting people. It's about discipling people. And it's about getting on your mission, knowing why you exist. What is your purpose? What is your meaning? What is your destiny? And following that, broken businesses are broken because they have lost their mission. Discipleship is struggling because we in the church have set aside our mission to chase other things. We've got, as leaders, to get back to the mission. And it's not a statement you put on a piece of paper and set on a shelf. It is what you live by day in, day out, decisions that you make, the way you think, the way you plan, the way you execute. That's what we call, Bill, in the corporate world, culture. That's the glue that keeps us on the mission. So the disciple dilemma is saying, version 1.0 discipleship, biblically represents believers following Christ unconditionally on the mission he gave us, not other missions he gave us. If you do the mission that Jesus gave us, which is the making of disciples, you get all the other stuff. You get prayer meetings, praise, worship, mission trips, sacrifice, surrender. But if you don't do the mission, you get fragile, brittle disciples. That's what leaders have to do. That's why this is a book for leaders. Leaders have to change our culture. Mm. Dennis, I, I, you hear that people will say, I went to this church, I wasn't getting what I wanted. And it does seem that more and more we're treating churches uh, in a in a consumeristic way where you talk about, well, if you come to this church, you'll have an amazing worship experience. And I think, well, that's nice, uh, but the purpose of worship is to praise God, not to necessarily get something for you. Do I have that right, or am I off base on that? I think the statistics would support you. There are two dysfunctional collisions in many churches on a Sunday. One is, I have to provide a venue of entertainment, joy, and concierge Christianity so I can drop the kids off grab a coffee, catch a great sermon, feel really good, and go home. That's a collision point from the church side. The other side is consumerism. I am that concierge Christian, and I'm walking and looking for the best service. It's a consumer-based item. Mm-hmm. Those two sliding together are just a travesty for discipleship, as opposed to that person surrendered in Christ, following Christ, and gathering together with other believers to praise, worship, and serve, giving up their own life. For the mm-hmm. rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So when you are showing up at a church and you want to be, uh, and you want to be discipled and they have a good discipleship program, uh, is there a, a way to remind people that there's going to, re- it's going to require not only some sacrifice, but, but putting, placing yourself under some leadership and authority in order to be 
trained up in God's word and to be uh, and to be discipled. One of our statements in the book, and this is borrowing from both Christianity in the biblical sense and the corporate world, is we're on the journey of a greenhouse growing plants, not microwaving a pizza. Right? <laughs> this is not yeah. short term. Catch a few programs, catch a few sermons, and everything's great. This is how we reconstruct a culture so that you and I begin thinking like this. My job, surrendered to Christ, is to have mentors ahead of me, wingmen beside mm-hmm. me, people who are walking along, perhaps learning a little bit from me. That's a complete culture shift as opposed to I hang out with friends, catch a sermon, and go home. We have to change culture. Leaders have to change culture. And it may begin, it may have to begin with a very few people in a church and a lot of other people saying, look, I'm just too far along. This isn't for me. I'm not doing this. Mm -hmm. And the church rebuilt the roots up as opposed to just trimming a few branches and moving ahead. Does that make sense? It does. Dennis, great to have you on. This has been so interesting. You've, You've made me think in a good way. My brain doesn't hurt. I appreciate you being on. Thanks for having me. You bet. Dennis Allen's been my guest. His book, The Disciple Dilemma, Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. We'll take a break. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.